This is the Gospel for Life, where we have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. Around the table today is Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Jonathan Van Hoogen from Dayspring United Reformed Church, Vinnie Hanke from Valley Life Community Church, and Ryan Hemphill from Treasure Valley Reformed Presbyterian Church. To catch earlier broadcasts, just search The Gospel for Life wherever you subscribe. To find out more about this ministry and about our annual conference, go to ReformationBoise.com. Hey, welcome back to The Gospel for Life, and Happy New Year! Uh, The rest of the guys and I are taking some time to rest as we start this new year and new week. Uh, Today, you'll be listening to my good friend, Pastor Russ Herman, preach through Psalm 115 at Cloverdale Reformed Church. Uh, What you'll appreciate about Russ is his dedication to the Word and calling your attention back to the authority and preeminence of Christ in all of Scripture. So we pray this sermon would be a blessing to you as you begin your new year. So Psalm 115, starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord... Not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. As some of you know, I normally preach on the first Sunday of the year a text that I want us as a church to have in our heads and our hearts and then hopefully live out in the rest of the year. For me, Psalm 115 is such a text. I feel bad actually for my family because oftentimes I mention scripture passages that I want preached at my funeral. It's a quite a large list, um, so it's going to be a long funeral. But there is one text that always comes back into the cycle, and I'm pretty confident it is the text that eventually they'll pick, and that's Psalm 115. This is, at least for me, one of my most important texts for my life. And my prayer is that as we go through the text this morning, that you'll begin to understand why. But more than that, that that you would begin to embrace it as a text that should define us and, and 
lead us and direct us as we live day by day and moment by moment in such a way that the truth and reality of the text does speak and testify to our lives that our life is not about us. Our life is about glorifying and magnifying and praising God. And this morning we want to look at this text using three points. First, trust. Second, blessing. And then third, glory and praise. So trust, blessing, and then third, glory and praise. Now before we get to our point, it might seem odd that we're not starting with glory as our first point because that's where the psalm begins. Not to us, O Lord, but To your name give glory. And so you you would expect that our first point would be about glory. And and that's a fair critique, and I I understand why that would be a natural inclination to start there. Um, The the psalm, however, is structured with with the idea of bookends. And so what that means is that where the, the psalm begins is also where the psalm ends. And so what you have is verses 1 through 3 dealing with glory be to God because he's the God of the heavens. And then you come back at the end of the psalm to praise to God because he's the God of the heavens. And so... You can either start with it or end with it. Either one is completely legit. If you want, you can start and end with it. But I'm going to leave that to the end. Um, But know and understand that the structure would allow for it either place or both. But I'm going to begin with trust, what verses 4 through 11 are about. And verses 4 through 11 really deal with two aspects of trust. What you have is misplaced trust is where it begins and then it will eventually move around to what true trust or appropriate trust should be. But it begins with misplaced trust. It it begins with the, the whole concept or theme of idolatry. And the punchline of the psalmist's view of idolatry is verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Trust in idols. Maybe if we took a step back, we could look and and just think for a moment about what idolatry is. So often it's easy to have in our minds this idea that idolatry is exactly what our text is talking about, that it's about things, objects that we make with our hands, that we set up on our, our mantles and worship them, that we carve and create. Yeah, that is an idol, But idolatry is much broader than that. It encompasses so much more. Tim Keller would say that it's taking good things and making them ultimate things. Seems appropriate to begin the year quoting Herman Bovink, doesn't it? Always good to quote Herman Bovink. Bovink would say that it's putting something else in the place of the one true God or alongside of him and placing your trust in that. See, that's the theme, isn't it, of of Psalm 115? That it's not that we just create it. We put our trust in it. 
Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what is idolatry? Question and answer 95. And gives this answer. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in the place of or alongside of the only true God. Trust in, in place of or alongside of. And the reality is, we can make an idol of anything. John Calvin's quote, might be the only quote people know of John Calvin. It's actually the, the, the quote that everybody knows of John Calvin and then quotes him wrong. But that's okay. People get in the ballpark. John Calvin actually said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. What it means is we can create an idol of anything we want to. Sure, it can be a false god. It can be that which we carve with our hands and put on our mantle and fall down and worship. It can be a false religion. It can be money or power or education. It can be relationships or technology or sports or achievement or popularity. I don't know what your idol is. Now, if I spend enough time with you and you spend enough time with me, we can figure out each other's idols, can't we? Now, the fact of the matter is, we all have them. To one degree or another, we all have them. I feel like this is an AA meeting, that we're just saying it. But I think it's appropriate that we do, that we admit it. See, we're so often so good at saying, well, this is something that somebody else struggles with. Poor them. Or we make it even worse and we say, oh, poor pagan them. This is what those uncivilized people do in the middle of, and then we pick some random place in the world and say, well, they are those that are idolaters. Poor them. Idolatry has nothing to do with where we live. Idolatry has everything to do with what's in our hearts. What we trust in, in place of, or alongside of, the one true God. But idolatry is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if we can be honest, idolatry is absolutely the dumbest thing in the world. Especially for the people of God. It doesn't make any sense. Isn't that what the psalmist is saying? The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. I mean, think about this. They're actually forming that which they're going to worship. Like they don't know that that's what they did. And then the, the, the psalmist goes on and say, they have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, their noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, they feet but don't walk. They're worthless. And they know it's worthless because they created it. And the psalmist is kind compared to Isaiah. If you have your finger in 
Psalm 115 and turn over to Isaiah 44. Isaiah has a bite to him. He's going to go after the nation for their idolatry. And quite honestly, he's going to be quite brutal. Going to make fun of them pretty aggressively. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. It says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may not be put to shame. Who fashions a, a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to, get, to, to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've done this. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. 